While most mythologies stretch so far back in time as to be shrouded in mystery, the reason they have survived through the ages is because, whether imagined or based on some event, they ring so profoundly they transcend their origins and continue to speak across time. Which is why other mythologies, some as recent as the last century, and thus verifiable by fact, defy their puncturing truths and reinflate to tell us something more. Not about the event, but about ourselves. Their retelling echoes within us in ways so unexpected, what they represent is far beyond our immediate experience of it. Which is why, based solely on physics, chemistry and fact, NASA's space programme has mythological resonance. It is not just the journey into the unknown, it is the vision to conquer what we initially assumed was unconquerable. Such vision is not the stuff dreams are made on, it's infinite courage. It's the right stuff. And therein lies the mythology. Released in 1983, The Right Stuff is adapted from the book of the same name by Tom Wolfe, who spent more than half a decade researching the stories before finally publishing them in 1979. Having begun his career in the late 50s with the Washington Post, transferring to the New York Herald in the early 60s before settling at Esquire magazine, Wolfe helped forge a fresh brand of reportage, new journalism. It incorporated several literary techniques, subjectivism, hyperbole and fiction, to name but three, which, when combined, resulted in a prioritisation of truth over facts. That is not to say that Wolfe ever lied in his reporting, but rather his pioneering, maverick style, sought to get the reader not necessarily inside the story, but instead inside the head of his subject. And getting inside that head required more than interviews. It demanded what Wolfe called saturation. Being so ever-present in the life of a subject, that he would witness so much, he could pick any single event to serve as a fulcrum, the point around which his subject's character would orbit. That approach worked well for Wolfe through the 60s and early 70s, by which time he was one of the most famous writers in America. But when, in 1973, he chose NASA's space program as his next subject, he soon found he faced a great problem when trying to interview the figures most central to the project. When I started talking to astronauts and immediately realized that it was taboo, the subject of the astronauts was not space. The subject was military flying and the code of the military pilot. The idea was you had to show carriage um, today in a hurtling piece of machinery and have the savvy, the moxie, to take that machine right out over the edge, right over the waiting uh, hallusion gulp of death uh, and bring it back in before you went too far and do it again tomorrow, the next day, the next day, uh, and preferably in a cause that means something to thousands of people, to a nation, to God. How can you write any account of history if the central figures won't recount the events? Well, isn't that where mythology takes over? In which case, it is only fitting that Wolf was the one who wrote the definitive account of the space program's origins. By necessity, the program needed pioneers, mavericks and outliers, whose gifts and granite-like sense of self were crucial in manning the machines that would ultimately lift humankind from the face of the planet and thus realign our consciousness. Think of that mind-altering moment of first seeing an image of the Earth, 
not from our own point of view, a few feet above it, but from 384,000 kilometres, one which rescaled our existence as a mere blue dot against the vast expanse of space. That Wolf himself was such a pioneering writer, it is only appropriate that the people who filmed Wolf's book were themselves pioneers and mavericks. Writer-director Philip Kaufman was born in Chicago in 1936, but had gone to San Francisco in the late 60s because a group of filmmakers, led by Francis Ford Coppola, had been gathering there to make movies that rebuked Hollywood's product. On Coppola's team was a very young George Lucas, who would later collaborate with Steven Spielberg on the Indiana Jones series, for which Kaufman co-wrote the story for the first episode. Another of Coppola's team was editor Lisa Fruchtman. Here is Fruchtman accepting her Oscar for the right stuff, when, along with Glenn Farr, Stephen A. Rotter, Douglas Stewart and Tom Rolfe, she shaped the vast quantity of footage into a thrilling three-hour ride. Uh, the right stuff required a monumental effort on the part of a lot of people, not, not all of whom we can thank tonight, but I'd like to just add to those already mentioned our producers, Robert Chardoff and Erwin Winkler, who were the first to see the, uh, the possibilities for a terrific movie in Tom Wolfe's book. And again, our director, Phil Kaufman, who transformed that book into a fantastic script and then into a fantastic movie from which we were able to work terrific footage and whose vision carried us throughout the editing. For myself, I'd like to just thank my husband for his unwavering support during a difficult year and a half and my colleagues, Francis Coppola, Walter Murch, and Bill Reynolds, without whose support and inspiration, I wouldn't be here tonight. Fruchtman's initial ambition was for science, but delaying her application to graduate school, she instead toured the world for a year, and it was only upon her return that she found her true vocation. Here she is in 2017, speaking at the Salesforce Design Leadership Conference in San Francisco. When I came back, I apprenticed myself to a documentary film collective, the first documentary film collective in the country that was doing socially conscious documentaries. And there was a young woman editing. And I, I didn't know anything about film, and I didn't know anything about editing. But somehow, I thought, you know, that could be me, seeing a woman model. And I moved to Canada, and I spent a year at the National Film Board of Canada. I got trained as an assistant editor. And then I came to San Francisco. I was following my boyfriend, who is now my husband. But, uh, but I went around and I met everyone, and I, lo and behold, I met the people at American Zoetrope. For a number of reasons, San Francisco and American Zoetrope are two very important elements in the making of the right stuff. Francis Ford Coppola set up a studio there in December 1969, if for no other reason that it was not Hollywood. Not only not Hollywood in a geographical sense, but also in terms of business practice and artistic endeavour. And it was with Coppola that Fruchtman got her first big break, working as an assistant editor on The Godfather Part Two, before being promoted to the main team on Apocalypse Now. At first I thought they handed me the wrong dossier. I couldn't believe they wanted this man dead. Third generation West Point, top of his class, Korea, airborne, about a thousand decorations, etc., etc. Coppola had a team of editors on Apocalypse Now, each of them given particular sequences to work with. Kaufman did the same thing with the right stuff, and it is a measure of the freedom Kaufman gave his team that in editing her sequences, Fruchtman hired in an extremely unique talent to help create the film's very subtle special effects. 
Remember, this was in the age before CGI. So to help solve that challenge, Fruchtman approached San Francisco-based abstract filmmaker Jordan Belson. You may not know his name, but you most certainly have seen a film that was heavily influenced by his work. My mind is growing. I can feel it. Stanley Kubrick was always a great devotee of avant-garde filmmaking. And whether it was Dr. Strangelove, 2001 or A Clockwork Orange, he was always looking in the most unusual places for inspiration. In developing the Stargate sequence in 2001, Kubrick happened upon a short film, Allures, made by Belson in 1961. Completely without narrative, and only seven minutes long, it took Belson a year and a half to make. But in 2011, the final result was included in the National Film Registry at the US Library of Congress. The sequence is a hypnotic kaleidoscope of alternating patterns and colour, which Belson devised, in his own words, as a combination of molecular structures and astronomical events, mixed with subconscious and subjective phenomena, all happening simultaneously to create a feeling of moving into the void. What you're going to hear is the lure score created by sound artist Henry Jacobs. Excuse the pun, but throughout the Right Stuff's three-hour running time, it hits many highs. And for me, the outstanding moment is when, on February 20th, 1962, John Glenn, played by Ed Harris, circumnavigated the globe at an altitude of 160 miles, at speeds of over 17,000 miles per hour. Glenn's flight path had him circle the Earth three times, and in order to capture, or at least convey, the constantly shifting light, the near-instant sunrises and sunsets, the coronas and near eclipses, Fruchtman sensed that Jordan Belson was the person who could best realise the ethereal moments. It is interesting to listen to Fruchtman talk about how she came up with the ideas for the right stuff, the early days of her career, as well as her experience as a woman in a male-dominated industry. I was the only woman on these big teams on these films, and I was the younger person and woman. So I think... Um, this was both certainly a disadvantage and an advantage. I think uh, people didn't expect as much from me or maybe looked down at me, but also mentored me and helped me. So I had both. I had great mentors, actually, in all of these men that I worked with. But I had to work hard to be taken seriously. Uh-huh. I did. I had to prove myself. That puts me in mind of another film about aviation, Howard Hawks's Only Angels of Wings. Set in an isolated trading post high up in the Andes, Cary Grant plays Jeff Carter, who is struggling to keep his air freight company from going bust. And into that tiny enclave of machismo comes a woman, Bonnie Lee, played by Jean Arthur. Bonnie is unused to the bravado needed in the face of such dangers. So when a pilot crashes, well that's just part of the job. And with the death of Jeff's friend, Joe Souther, played by Noah Beery Jr., Bonnie has to learn to live with the dread as well. How can you do that? What? Eat that steak. What's the matter with it? It was his. Like, what do you want me to do? Have it stuffed? Haven't you any feelings? Don't you realize he's dead? Who's dead? Yeah, who's dead? Joe. Joe? And who's Joe? Anybody know Joe? A similar trait is evident in the right stuff. The wives of the test pilots, played by Veronica Cartwright, 
Pamela Reed, Mary Jo Deschanel, Kathy Baker, Mickey Crocker, Susan Case and Mitty Smith each live with the daily uncertainty that their husbands may be burned beyond recognition. After all, there was a 23% probability that a Navy pilot would be burned beyond recognition. Three words Wolf uses six times in his book's opening 12 pages. But each wife also recognised that being able to do that work, to have the right stuff, is who her husband is. And if she were to ever ask him to stop. Here is Barbara Hershey, who played Glennis Yeager, wife of Chuck Yeager, played by Sam Shepard, being interviewed in 1984 by John C. Tibbetts for CBS Television. Well, part of the interesting aspect is she says, you know, I always hated flying. And that is quite a blow and quite a, a shocking thing to say to a man who, who she, I mean, she's never said that to, whose whole life is flying, <laughs> by the way, after 15 years of marriage. Yet, if you don't do what you're supposed to do with your life, I'm leaving. That's so much who he is that if he isn't that, it's, it's nothing she that she can respect. She wouldn't, she wouldn't yeah. stay with him. So the, the, the dichotomy in there to me is what's beautiful. The Right Stuff's Oscar-winning score was composed by Bill Conti. But for Glenn's flight, Fruchtman suggested music from, appropriately enough, Gustav Holt's Planet Suite, specifically Mars, Jupiter and Neptune. Which brings me to the film's sound design. And again, that brings us back to San Francisco. One of the apprentices in the sound mixing team on Apocalypse Now was Randy Thome, who, along with Mark Berger, Tom Scott and David McMillan, received Academy Awards for their work on The Right Stuff. Here is Thome in 2018, talking with Glenn Kayser of the Dobby Institute. It's not enough just to design cool sounds or beautiful sounds or scary sounds. The film itself, or at least scenes within the film, need to be designed with sound in mind. I decided that I wanted to get involved in films as early as possible is to encourage the director and the screenwriter to think very specifically about how sound is likely to be used, musical sound and sound design in a scene. A lot of this for me begins with Apocalypse Now, partly because it was the first film I ever worked on. Before getting into film, Thome had worked in music, specifically on a record station in San Francisco, owned by Soul Zance. Today, Zance is remembered as the very independent, three-time Oscar-winning producer of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Amadeus and The English Patient. But before that, Zance had been in the music business. In the 1940s, he had landed a job with jazz impresario Norman Grants, working on Grants' various recording labels. By the mid-50s, Zance had moved to Fantasy Records in San Francisco, taking care of such greats as Duke Ellington, Dave Brubeck, Miles Davis, John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins. By the end of the 60s, Zance had purchased the recording company and turned it into the world's largest jazz label. And just as quickly, he turned Bay Area band Creedence Clearwater Revival into one of the era's most seminal acts. One of the actresses already mentioned was Mary Jo Deschanel, whose husband Caleb 
was the Right Stuff cinematographer. Deschanel earned his second Oscar nomination on the film, but had begun his career as part of the same San Francisco alumni working with American Zoetrope. Here he is in 2014 at the Camera Image Festival in Bydgoszcz, Poland. The big thing about The Right Stuff was exactly that, was to give the audience the experience of actually being there. And one of the interesting things that happened is that when we started you know, doing the, the visual effects for the movie, all the stuff of breaking the sound barrier and everything, we wanted to be really energetic. And you know, it gives, I think it gives the film a reality that, that is much more effective. Given NASA's incredible triumph, it would have been very easy for Kaufman to wrap the whole thing in a patriotic fervour. But he didn't. Most likely because he was part of the counterculture movement in San Francisco during the 1960s. As a consequence, The Right Stuff is The Right Stuff. A great American film about one of humankind's greatest achievements. (laughs) ¶¶